Morning, everybody. It's great to see all of you this morning. Isn't it great to finally have a sunny day? I was just excited when I woke up and saw that. Um, just like we've heard a few times today, this is Father's Day, and I just want to start by taking a minute just to honor fathers. I wonder if we could just clap our hands in a way of showing honor to the fathers in the room. Also, in honor of Father's Day, I have some dad jokes. I have a fairly serious sermon, so it's great to start with a few jokes, so bear with me. Did you hear about the, the restaurant on the moon? Great food, no atmosphere. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. Ah, stole my thunder there. Um, I have a fairly long passage to talk about today, so I, I kind of decided I'm not going to try and read it all, because whenever I try and read a lot, I just get all fumbled over the words. So I'm going to kind of just summarize it for us and just pull out a few key verses that I really want to focus on. But we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 to 18. And before I start, I just want to take a moment to pray. Dear Lord God, I just want to pray for this time today, Father. Um, I pray, Father, that you would achieve your purpose, Father. This wouldn't just be some kind of exercise that we do every week, Father, but you would be here, you would meet us here today, and you would achieve your purpose. God, I pray that you give me calmness and put the words in my, mouth, in my mind that I need to share. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 19, but just want a quick, quick summary of chapter 18. Um, so what's happening in chapter 18 is, is, is probably a, a, a story you're very familiar with, which, which is Elijah facing off against the, uh, the prophets of Baal. And, you know, in that competition, there's a competition set up where they both put a bulls on, on, on a pillar, or sorry, on a platform or whatever. And, you know, Elijah challenges them to say, you know, you pray to your God, I'll pray to my God, and we see who's going to burn up the offerings. Well, it's, a, it's an amazing victory because, you know, basically the prophets of Baal are humiliated. They do everything they can, and they just can't have any miracle come out. And without any effort at all, um, God totally burns up the altar in front of the, the kingdom of Israel. So he shows himself in a powerful way. And Elijah is, ec- is, ec- is ecstatic, and he commands that the, the prophets of Baal are killed because they are false, false prophets. When Jezebel hears about this, she's not very happy. And she, she sends out a warning to, uh, to Elijah and says, in the same way you killed the prophets of Baal, I'm going to make sure you're killed. So when Elijah gets this message, he's afraid. And because he's afraid, he runs. And that's when we come to uh, this ver- verse, which is 1 Kings 19.4. He came to a broom bush sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you've been to the point where you're you're willing to pray that, that prayer? I've had enough. Please, Lord, let me go. Then God sent an angel to Elijah to provide him food, strengthen him, and lead him to a cave on Mount Horeb. 
There, the exchange, there this exchange happens with God. This is verses 9 to 13. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood, on the, stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah, was provided the same, and Elijah provided the same response to God's question that he did the first time. Then, finally, God sent Elijah away with instructions to anoint Hazael, king of Aram, and anoint Jehu, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha as a prophet to replace Elijah. God announced he was going to use these men to clean house. But reserve, but reserve 7,000 faithful in, in 1 Kings 19.18. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So when I read this passage, the thought that came in my head right away is like, you know what? Probably for the first time in my life, I think I could really relate to Elijah. I could understand, in a way, what he was feeling and the profound discouragement that he was going through. You know, by the time we get to this story, the kingdom of Israel was in a very slow decline. One king after another that was moving farther and farther away from God to the point where we came to Ahab and Jezebel, where they had set up altars to Baal all through the kingdom of Israel. And to a large extent, Israel had turned their back on God. And Elijah was dropped into this and had to be a prophet to call people back to God. So you could sense how alone he felt in those verses. You could sense how much he felt like he was standing in the gap all by himself. And I think today in our society, there's so many parallels. You know, I think if you look at our society, they tell us this is a post-Christian society. And people are very much moving away from God, more than moving towards God. Christianity no longer has favor in the public square. There's often very hostile attitudes towards Christians, not just indifference. You know, when I first became a Christian 20-some-odd years ago, you know, there was a little bit of hostility, but mostly the attitude, I think, of most people was indifference. When I was excited about my faith and said, hey, I'm a Christian, they would kind of go, oh, well, that's, that's nice for you. I hope you enjoy it. Today, I think in many ways, if you did the same thing, you would, also, you would almost feel hostility. So people have moved from a sense of indifference to almost hostility towards Christians. 
Many sources have revealed that Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world today, and that trend is only increasing. So what do we do? We're this, this kingdom under oppression. We're a people that people aren't too impressed with right now. So how, should, you know, how do we approach that? This can be just, let's be honest, this can be a very discouraging time to be a Christian. You know, we can relate with Elijah's profound discouragement when he said, God, I'm tired. I'm done with this. Can I just go home now? And I can really relate with that. There's days where I think I almost pray that prayer. But you know what? I, when I was thinking about this a little bit farther, the image came into my mind. I wonder if you can make sure it's up on the screen there. There's a picture from the movie, the, uh, the, la- the last movie in the Lord of the Rings series. And we see Aragorn, you know, the, 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 new, anoint- the new king. Of the, uh, and he's standing there at the gates of, of, of the, the evil kingdom. He and his men are greatly outnumbered. They, you know, it's just overwhelming the forces arraigned against him. And Aragorn leads his people and he, start, he gives them an immensely powerful speech to pick them up and to give them the courage to face what's in front of them. And he starts with this. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. What a powerful statement. He goes on to, to with a really stirring and powerful speech to pick up their spirits and to, to enable them for the battle that's against them. I often think when I look around at my fellow Christians that I see in your eyes the same discouragement that would take the heart of me. And it bothers me. It concerns me. So I don't know if I'm up to the task today, but what I want to do today is just like Oregon, or, or, <laughs> Oregon did, I want to encourage you. I want to fire you up for the battle in the world. I want you to go out with a God ten times bigger than, than in your image than you saw when you walked into this place. I want you to go out not defeated, but ready for the challenges that are in front of you. And that's my prayer. So what should we do when we're in this world where there's so much coming against us? How, what should our attitude be? What should our response be to it? So I want to start with listing a few things that I think we should not do. These should not be our responses to this situation. And then talk about a few things which I think should be our response to this situation. Number one, I think what we should not do is we should not retreat. The world very much tells us today that, you know, we'll still allow you to have your Christianity, but keep it to yourself. Keep it in your churches. Don't bring it out into the public square. It's not welcome there. And we should, and, and I think it's sad, but I think to a large extent, many of us have almost started to accept that. We've almost started to retreat and accept, okay, we'll just stay in our own buildings. It's nice and safe there. We'll, we'll, we'll abandon the public square. We won't talk publicly about Jesus anymore. And I just want to remind you and challenge you that Christianity was never, ever meant to be a private thing. Christianity is meant to be lived in public, not hidden behind closed doors. 
Matthew 5, 14 to 15. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives, gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are called to be public Christians and be public in our faith. That doesn't mean we need to go out and be offensive. Not encouraging that in any way. But we should not retreat. We should not abandon the public square. You know, a few years ago, many years ago, I went to a, a conference in Chicago. And I got to hear a very powerful speaker named Tony Evans. He's this big ex-football player, very powerful man. And he uses his football experience to tell a story which really spoke to me. And he talked about how, you know, in a football game, when you think about it, it's kind of funny, right? Because what happens often at the beginning of every prey is you see all these big guys all in a circle, shoulder to shoulder on a field. And when you're a spectator, you're going, why are we watching these guys stand there on the field? Right? And that's called the huddle. Right? And he used that as an analogy for, for Christians. We as Christians huddle as well. We huddle on Sunday mornings. We huddle in our small groups. There's times where we just come together as a group and we huddle. And we plan our plays and we, and we encourage each other and we build each other up. But you know, the fans aren't there to watch the huddle. The fans are there to see after you huddle, what's the play you put on the field? And I think he said, and Tony has challenged us. He said, the same is true for Christianity. We get high on the huddle sometimes. We put so much focus on the huddle, on the times when we're just together to build each other up, which is good. But the question is, once you've been encouraged, once you've been equipped, once you've been built up, what's the play on the field? What impact is that going to have on Monday morning? What impact is that going to have on the world around you? That's the question. That's what the world wants to see. As Christians, what impact are we going to have on the world? The huddles are good, but let's not stay there. Let's get out and do stuff. The other tendency I think I see, or we should not do, is we should not try to reconcile with the world. What do I mean by that? I think there's a big tendency today with a lot of Christians, maybe even more so in the younger generation, there's a great comfort, right? You know, we as individuals, we as people, we want to be in the mainstream of thought. There's great comfort when we're just in the biggest crowd in our society. If we're in the mainstream of thought in the world today, it's comforting. So, there's a, so therefore, there's a huge temptation now that the mainstream of thought has moved so far away from Christianity. There's a great temptation for all of us to kind of move a little bit with it. We want to be in that comfort place of where we're acceptable to the general public. So we want to kind of find, we, we struggle to try to find a way to reconcile the, the, the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible with the mainstream of thought in the world today. And I think this is especially hard for the younger generation. Is they're trying to find a way, how can, I, how can I reconcile this? How can I make peace with the world around me? 
And my only statement to you is stop trying. We cannot always reconcile our obedience to Christ with the demands of the world. There's a point where that just becomes impossible. And when that becomes impossible, you've got a big decision to make. Is where are you going to stand? Who is your master? Who gets to call the shots in your life? Who do you want to serve? Is the world and all the critics in the world, are those the ones you want to cater to? Or is it more important to, to, that your Father in heaven would be pleased with you? Is it more important, I want to please him before I please anybody else? And I challenge all of us to take the same attitude. Make it a decision today. I will please my Lord before anybody else. I'm not saying we have to be hostile to the world, but we cannot always reconcile the truths that, uh, of, the, uh, of the kingdom of God with the demands of the world. It's just impossible. So stop trying. Peter, in Acts 5.29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The same is very true for us. The other thing we should recognize is that we have authority to preach the gospel and make disciples. I think there's a lot of people in the world, the world kind of tells us, you know, you know, don't do that. You're offending people. What gives you the right to preach the gospel? What gives you the right to talk about salvation and sin and all those things? This is what gives us the right. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So who is the authority that we recognize? It is right and it is good to recognize the earthly authorities have been put in place. But this passage makes it very clear. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus made it clear that he is standing in the place of complete authority. And then based on that authority, he commands us. He says, this is what I want you to do. Any authority that puts itself up against this simply should fall away. There is no greater authority than this authority that was given in this verse. So I'm not saying we have to, again, I'm not saying we have to go out and be obnoxious and arrogant and, and you know, just be run over people. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying we should get into these battles about rights. But we as believers have to recognize and stop letting people tell us who we should be. We have to recognize that we have been given authority, and there's nobody of greater authority who can take it away from us. The other thing we should not do is we should not grow bitter. You know, I remember hearing this many years ago, and I think it's so true. Adversity will either make you bitter or better. You choose. Bitter or better. You choose. It is, I think it would be very easy for many of us today to become bitter. i got to confess it's a huge temptation for me. I'm in this terrible habit when the first thing I get in the morning is open my phone and I start reading the daily news. 
I read the daily news for a half an hour, 45 minutes. And by the time I'm done, oh boy, there's a feeling of bitterness in me. When I see all the offensive things happening in the world, I have the sense of bitterness growing up in me. And I get bitter towards the leaders. And I get bitter towards those who are, are leading the world in, in what I think is a horrible direction. But bitterness is not supposed to be something that characterizes the child of God. Ephesians 4.31 says this, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I think we have to look at ourselves on a, da- on a daily basis. I put it here, perform a self-diagnostic often. To avoid bitterness, we have to be very aware about what's going on inside of us. So almost on a daily basis, search your heart. Look for that root of bitterness and cast it out. What can we do to avoid becoming bitter? The only thing I came up with is remain in Christ. You know, he says, apart from me, remain in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. And you'll see those, that, that statement many times in the New Testament. He says, remain in me. The only way to become more like Christ is to spend more time with him. And, if, and the more like we're like Christ, the, least, the less room there is for things like bitterness to grow up inside of us. So stay close to Christ. And that helps to protect us from, from those bitter attitudes growing towards the world and people around us. The other thing we should not do is we should not hate or go to war. What do I mean by that? There's a tendency when we see all of this bad stuff happening that we're going to pick up, we're going to pick up our pitchforks and we're going to war against all of this lies and, and bad stuff that's happening in the world. And when we get this attitude of aggression towards the world, I think it does little good and can do great harm. I think rather our attitude when we face all this hostility from the world or, or all this criticism is we should just simply stand in a place of humbleness but say, this is who I am and this is what I'm about and leave it there. I'm not here to fight you, but this is where I stand. You know, the critics against Christianity are not my adversaries. They are my mission. I am not fighting against them. I'm fighting for them. I think that's really important that we keep that in our heart. My job is not to fight against the critics of Christianity. I'm fighting for them. I want them to come to understand their need of a savior, the same savior that I've discovered I need. I'm fighting on their behalf, not against them. I don't want to win the argument. I want to win their soul for Christ. And I think if we have that attitude, that's not going to war. I'm not going to war against the critics of Christianity. I'm going to war for them. I want to win them to Christ. That's my attitude. That's got to be driven more out of a, out of a conviction of, of love than of hate. You know, the other thing I recognize where I think things start to fall apart, you know, who is my real enemy? I just said that the critics are not my enemy. But Satan is my enemy. And I've come to understand in my life that Satan is a braggart. 
He loves to brag. Right? So when he, he makes us look at the world around us and he puts his, his thumbs in his suspenders and says, Ha! Look what I'm doing to the world. You don't got a chance. Satan's a braggart, but he's a liar. Don't buy into his bragging. Don't let him convince you that he's winning. Don't let him convince you that he's got more of a claim on this world than God does. Call him out for the liar that he is. And don't buy into his bragging. His bragging is designed to discourage and to hold us down. Don't let him. So I've just listed off a bunch of things that we should not do. So what are some things we should do? We should be honest with God and others. There is no need to put on a brave face. As we saw in the story we read, Elijah expressed his grave discouragement to God. And I think there's an invitation for us to do the same thing. God's God's primary response to Elijah when he expressed his discouragement was one of of strengthening over rebuke. So we should be willing to, to, to acknowledge our discouragement to God and to others. But then we also have to realize that just because we feel it does not mean it is real. There is no point denying what we feel, but at the same time we have to acknowledge that not everything we feel is what is real. Admit our, discourage, admit our discouragement and accept the help that God and others can provide. You know, I find it interesting that in that storage, that even after God, all of God's efforts to refresh Elijah, God still respond, responded to God with the same complaint that the whole conversation started with. You know, and we can get all down on Elijah. It's like, God, didn't you get it, Elijah? But I think if we, if we are honest, we're the same way. The truth of God doesn't always sink in easily, right? And we hold on to our discouragements. But I, I also like this, that, you know, even though, you know, Elijah responded with the same sense of discouragement, but, you know, God didn't say to him, okay, Elijah, you're right. You've had enough. Sit here, relax. Sit here and be encouraged. I'll get somebody else to do it. He didn't. God sent Elijah out and he says, he said, in a sense, you're almost done, but you still got some work to do. And it, I think it's the same for us. Yes, we, are, we get discouraged and stuff like that. And we shouldn't expect that it all gets easy. But God still has a job for us. And there's a point that even when we're tired and we're feeling weak and we're not feeling discouraged, there's still a time to get up and do what we're called. There's a point where it just comes down to just do it. The other thing I think is really important for us to do in this world is gain a fresh understanding of God's sovereignty and strength. You know, that's what Elijah needed. That's what God, I think that that's what that story was about where Elijah showed him, you know, when God walked by and showed him this great power. It's Elijah needed to be reminded about the greatness of God and his strength, and that there is a God in charge of it all. One thing I think that happens with us is we miss God's power because we get so used to it. What do I mean? Acts 17.28 says this, For in him 
We live, move, and have our being. You know, the truth is that every breath I breathe is according to the will of God. Every breath I breathe is, is, what he, is a breath he allows. I wake up every morning, and it's, it's the same old world, right? But you know what? We've lost the sense of the greatness and the amazingness of this world. You know, when I, when I was in, in college, there was, there was a, a, a teacher that taught astronomy. And he was this genius, an absolute genius. He often talked so far over our heads, we couldn't understand half of what he was saying. But one thing I appreciated so much about him is he had this incredible awe about creation. So he would be teaching us astronomy, and then he'd go off in some divergent and start talking about this incredible calculation I couldn't begin to understand about calculating some fourths in the universe or something like that. And he put zero after zero after zero on the board, and then he turned to us, and his eyes would bug out of his head, and he'd go, that's a big number. And I think we got to get up every day and just go, let the eyes bug it out and say, that is a big God. The creation around us is huge. And the creation around us is infused with miracles. We just stop seeing it. We have to open our eyes afresh and see every day that the miracles that are around us. You know, Elijah... You know, I think that's what God was doing when, when, when he dis- did that display before Elijah. He remi- God is trying to remind Elijah about how great he is. You know, and when God does decide to show off, it's impressive. Think about this. When was the last time you experienced a wind that could break rocks? But that's what the verse says. The wind was so powerful, it it split rocks. And then there was an earthquake, and then there was fire. And then there was a whisper. And all we know is is it says that God was not in all those powerful things. It doesn't say he was in the whisper, but that is certainly implied, that God was more in the whisper than all those powerful shows. So what do we take from that? What do we get from that? You know, I started thinking about, like, why is that important? God whispers. You know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, in public speaking, there's this, techno, there's this technique you're encouraged to do. Sometimes it's like, lower your voice and pause. Right? And why would I do that? Because when I whisper, your attention is drawn in. When I whisper, it, it's saying, come close. Come close and listen. And I think that's what God's doing to a large extent, too. He's not yelling. He's whispering, saying, come close. I have something to say to you. Come close. The other thing is, God is so, so powerful. He doesn't have to shout. He simply doesn't have to shout. He chooses to show himself more in whispers than in storms. He wants us to come close and to focus on him. You know, the world around us is so loud. I don't have to focus to hear the messages of the world. They're loud. They're there. They're obvious. But God says, come listen. Come close. Listen to me. Focus. I have something to say. 
He whispers because he wants us to come close and to listen. You know what I've, I've come to realize in my life? I thought of this a long time ago, and it's really spoke to my heart. God, God can show himself in destructive power. But I think God chooses, his strength is more often shown in creative power than in destructive power. When God shows his power, it's much more in creative ways than in destructive ways. You know, we measure power by number of TNT, right? When you talk about an atomic bomb, is how many megatons? What does that mean? How many megatons of TNT does it represent? What's the destructive power in that? That's often the way we measure power in this world. But I think God has a different measure of power. He measures himself in creative power. He shows himself in creative power. Let me ask you this. Who is more powerful? Someone who can smash a car to bits or someone who has the skill, patience, and knowledge to put it back together again after it's been smashed? Who displays more power in that scenario? I, would, I think it takes far more power to create than to destroy. And God shows his incredible power in the way he creates. You know, when God created the world, he didn't shout. He spoke it into being. He just declared it to be. And he's chosen that his, his greatness is displayed in his creative power that nobody else has ever been able to match. You know, we have to remember who God is. He is sovereign. He can't lose. Sometimes we get caught up in this idea that somehow there's this battle going on between good and evil and there, there's this struggle. Let me tell you, the battle is already won. He can't lose. There's no, there's no challenger towards God. He is sovereign. You know, I got to admit that sometimes that word sovereignty makes me uncomfortable. I know there's a lot of theology that goes with that, and some of it is very unattractive to me. But at the same time, I cannot deny when you read the Bible that the, that the sovereignty of God is there in spades. It's just clear. He has never, never abdicated his place as the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's in charge of everything. Nothing, everything that happens in this world, he allows to happen. For now, people have choice, but only as long as he allows it. There is no real start struggle between good and evil. He's just being patient. Matthew 5.45 says this, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Romans 14.11 says this, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. And every tongue will acknowledge God. That's not an aspiration. That's a certainty. He does not need anyone's permission or acceptance to be God. He cannot be voted out of office. He is God. And what he says, what he divines will come to pass. But he is patient. He's giving everyone a chance to turn to him. Don't, don't mistake God's patience for impotence. 
there's bad stuff happening to the world today. It's not because he can't fight it. It's because he's being patient. He's waiting for everyone to turn to him. So what should we do? I think the most important thing we should do in this world, this post-Christian world that is in many ways hostile towards Christianity, listen to this. We should preach the gospel. We should preach the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is still the most important message the world needs to hear. It's not one idea amongst many. It is the truth that the world most desperately needs. And we have it. And we need to share it. You know, there's, even though there, you know, there's, there's, there is this hostility towards Christianity, I think I also see an immense hunger in the world today. You know, Jordan Peterson is this Canadian intellectual, and I'm not going to, you know, praise him or anything, but I want it, but I think it's fascinating where so much of what he teaches is basic Christian morality, even though he doesn't call it that. And it's amazing how there's so many people that are looking to that with hunger because we live in a world where there's so much confusion that people don't know where to turn anymore for truth. And here's this guy that just says some very obvious things, and people are eating it up. There's a hunger where people are looking for something that matters, something that is a truth that is not going to be true today and somehow change next week, which seems to keep happening with all the truths of the world today. They're looking for that certainty, and that can only be found in God. You know, preaching the gospel is something that makes us all nervous. We're afraid. It's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard to preach the gospel. It's hard to stand out. It's hard to to preach this message that often is not well received. But what am I going to say? Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Yes, maybe we're not perfect at it. Yes, maybe we've got stuff to learn. Yes, maybe, maybe we're not the most gifted speaker. Yes, maybe we're not the most gifted intellectual. I don't care. Do it anyway. We are called to preach the gospel. Just simply go and tell what the Lord has done for you. I'm going to stop now. And in conclusion, I just want to say I know it is tough to stay encouraged in a world that is so hostile towards us. But this is not our home. And it will come to an end in God's timing. However, now is the time of mission. In this post-Christian world, there is real hunger, and people still have choice. So don't retreat, but preach the gospel. There has never been a better time for it. I'm just going to stop there. Oh, actually, i got a job to do. We're going to take up the collection now, so I'm going to take a time to pray for the the collection and and for us in general. Father, I just want to take this opportunity to pray for this church. Father, I pray that this is a church that could be encouraged and be sent out on mission. And Father, I pray that that we'd even in in our giving today, that we'd see this as an act of mission, that we'd see this of of contributing to the mission of this church and and to to reach the world for Christ. I just pray, God, that you would... um, Bless this time and bless these offerings in your name. Amen.